From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we're going to help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern, and you can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and find me on LinkedIn. We've often noted that you can't manage what you don't measure, whether we're talking about our personal finances or our health. Data lets us know where we are and inform our ability to get where we want and need to be. This is also true for organizations, of course, and especially important when it comes to creating more diverse and inclusive workplaces. It's also a challenging and complex undertaking, which is why we're particularly grateful that LeanIn.org and McKinsey joined forces now about nine years ago to generate the essential Women in the Workplace report. It's the largest study of women in corporate America, and year after year, it makes clear where women are progressing and where we're not, and helps us understand the reasons why. I'm excited to explore all of it with two authors of the report, Rachel Thomas, CEO of LeanIn.org, and Emily Field, partner at McKinsey & Company. Rachel's the co-founder and CEO of LeanIn.org, and they help women achieve their ambitions and work to tear down the barriers that hold women back at work. Under Rachel's leadership, LeanIn has become a go-to resource for original research and data-backed programs to dismantle systemic bias in the workplace. She's also spearheaded the launch of LeanIn's Allyship at Work program and the 50 Ways to Fight Bias program. Together, these two programs give employees the practical knowledge and tools they need to fight bias and show up as allies. Emily Field is a partner in McKinsey's Seattle office. She partners with leaders to shape data-driven organizational strategies, establish talent management as a distinctive advantage, and secure the human resources function as a driver of business value. She puts particular emphasis on helping to establish a talent-first approach, instilling a high-performance culture, and adopting effective people analytics approaches. A woman after my own heart. So Emily, Rachel, welcome to Women at Work. I'm thrilled to have you here and excited to dig into this. Um, How are you both doing today? We're great. And thank you for having us. Thank you for your interest in this report every year. We appreciate it. Oh, I think it's essential. And really glad to be diving into it. But before we talk about the findings, what they mean for us, what we can do about it, um, Rachel, can you share a little bit on where the data comes from? Who who participated? How is it analyzed and interpreted? It's a great question. So uh, every year we we pull in data three different ways or information three different ways. One, uh, we collect pipeline data from participating companies. This year, about 275 companies participated, employing over 12 million people. So we get all of their pipeline data. Uh, we also uh, interview their HR leaders. We have an interview uh, a survey for them to understand. Uh, some of their policies, decision making, you know, how they are thinking about their future of work, all the things that you would expect. And then finally, and where we often get our richest insights is we uh, survey employees themselves. And uh, we survey tens of thousands of employees, which really allows us to get a lot of visibility, not just into the experiences of women but into the experiences of particular groups of women, because the data set is so big, we can look at what's happening specifically for black women, Latinas, you know, uh, women with disabilities, LGBTQ plus women, and even look at uh, by identity and by level, which really brings, I think, a lot of uh, color and nuance to the findings. And we hear from a lot of women, they really feel like they see themselves in the data and they feel validated by the data, which is something that we always love to hear. And then finally, we do qualitative interviews. And that's where if anyone has read the report, I hope you go find it and read it. And that actually brings, you know, I think a lot of the data to life because ultimately this is about people and their workplace experiences. So those qualitative interviews and those quotes are important. Yeah, so as a just a little summary of it, it's like the perfect use of mixed methods approach to really doing the data mining with 12 million employees worth of data. That's kind of mind boggling. Never mind the surveys that you then do. And then the interview process, you're really getting such multidimensionality here. It's incredible. So next question, um, Emily, 
what are the key, where are the recommendations in the report come from? One of the things, and I encourage you all, go download it. It's free. It's easy to get to, and it's meaningful. Um, and throughout it, there's not just these findings, but information on what we can do about it. Where do the recommendations come from? Who's writing them? What informs them? Yeah, well, and actually, Laura, this is one of the key reasons I got involved. And this is my first year as a co-author of the report. We really want to drive action, right? We are not satisfied. Yes, some progress has been made, but the gains are fragile, right? And so we really want to put the spotlight on what should organizations do about it? So it comes from a couple of different sources. One, we really study what do high-performing organizations do? The organizations that have made the most progress, that have fixed what I'm sure we'll talk about, the broken rung, and we study them and look at the data. Um, and then two, we really look at the data um, of what we're seeing in organizations with whom we partner. And so part of the reason I got involved is what we see is one of the biggest solutions, one of the biggest critical areas to tackle is really on managers. And having written a book recently with Harvard Business Review Press, Power to the Middle, um, Why Managers Hold the Keys to the Future of Work, we really spotlight the role of managers and how they need to help fix the broken run. But it really, first and foremost, like the rest of the report, it starts with understanding the data, what's working. Okay. So with that, uh, Rachel, what are the key takeaways? How much has changed for the worse and where is their progress? Let's start there. Oh, well, that is a big question. So this <laughs> year we organized the report into four main themes or um, that we're debunking, you know, myths about uh, women's experiences at work. Uh, I know we'll get into all of them, but the first one is around women's ambition. If you've read headlines over the last 18 or 24 months, there are, you know, there is a narrative that's bubbling out there that women have somehow become less ambitious since the pandemic or less ambitious with the switch to fle more flexible work and more remote work. And in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. We know that women and men are more ambitious than they were before the pandemic. We know that women are just as ambitious as men. They're just as committed to their careers. They're just as interested in advancing to the next level. And we also know that when women work remotely, they are just as ambitious as women working on site and men working on site. So one of our big messages this year is if you've read the headlines, the biggest study on the state of women in corporate America tells a very different story. Women are as ambitious as ever, more ambitious than before the pandemic, and flexibility is actually fueling. It's helping people, bear with me, kind of lean into their ambitions, women and men, um, and that is our largest finding this year. And we can talk more, but the problem is a lot of the same headwinds still exist in the workplace, which is just critically important that organizations after nine years really internalize those headwinds and take action. So there's much to explore here, but let's go over what the other three myths were. And then we're going to dive into the leaky pipeline, who it's hurting the most and what we can do about some of this. So what's the so the first myth was that we're not ambitious. So let's talk then about flexibility. Tell me yeah. a bit more about how women's um, that exhaustion that we were hearing about during the pandemic, that frustration, because I think this the myth that women were just dropping out, quiet quitting, you know, what did they call it, girl quitting, is more about facing the challenges at a particular moment in time. Um, the How did flexibility help first help women and how are organizations responding to it? Do you want I to think what's most important here too is it helps men too, right? So flexibility is not just for women. It is something that women and men want um, in, a, in a large proportion. And when we look at the data and we say, particularly for hybrid employees, people who work a combination of in-person and remotely, we see loud and clear that they say that they have an easier time balancing work in life. They're more productive. They're more efficient. They experience less burnout and fatigue, right? So it is helping them be more effective to show up um, and to do their jobs. 
So flexibility isn't about a lack of desire to engage. It's that it's a useful tool to engage in a maximally effective way. Laura, that's exactly right. We know that women who work flexibly are just as ambitious as women who don't. And we know that one in five women say flex work has helped them stay in their job or avoid reducing their hours. So certainly that's a foundation to ambition, right? If you're able to stay in your job and not reduce your hours. We also know, and um, Emily touched on this a little bit, we know that women who work hybrid or remotely, they point to heightened productivity, uh, reduce fatigue and burnout. Um, And they also say they have more time to get their work done when they work remotely, which just makes sense, particularly for women, given they're often balancing so much at work and at home. And that's why we were excited by this year's findings. Um, Flexibility is definitely an all-employee story, as Emily said. Really, everybody points to the value of flexibility. uh, But for women, it's an unlock. uh, It's an unlock for ambition, um, not inhibiting ambition in any way. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Sarrow. My guests today are Rachel Thomas, CEO of LeanIn.org, and Emily Field, partner at McKinsey & Company, and they are co-authors of the ninth Annual Women in the Workplace Report. So going back to these four findings, the, the myth-busting of this year's report, there's another dimension of benefit that comes from flexibility, and that's when uh, we get to work at home, because it's not just what home gives us, it's what we're avoiding in the workplace. Talk to me about microaggressions and their impact. Emily, you wanna give it a crack? Happy to. So microaggressions we talk about is, yes, they're small actions, but it's creates this mental mind field for women at work and it becomes death by a thousand paper cuts. When we study um, microaggressions, we say, look, they have macro impact. And so when we talk about microaggressions, these small, often unintended little um, jabs, I might call them, right? Being interrupted, having your credibility questioned, right? Women are one and a half times more likely than men to have a colleague take credit of their work, twice as likely to be interrupted, to have um, comments or questions about their emotional state. And also, um, it's particularly bleak for traditionally marginalized identities, right? Uh, women of color, LGBTQ plus colleagues, um, Asian and black women are three times more likely than white women or women overall to be confused for someone of the same race or ethnicity, right? These make people feel psychologically unsafe. It's harder to take risks. Um, And as a result, women um, report having to self-shield and um, when we talk about self-shielding, right, it's about they're having to alter how they look, how they engage and act to protect themselves. When I talk about that macro impact, right, that's what I'm talking about, right? They're feeling like they're having to change how they're showing up. And that impacts, you know, their ability to stay in the workforce, their ability to want to work for that employer. And we have to tackle that head on. And it's also, as you noted, it it takes a huge psychological toll, which then takes a physical toll. It depletes energy when you have to hide every day because you're being assaulted. It diminishes you in really profound ways. Um, Rachel, can you share a little bit about how this relates to code switching and what we're hearing from particular members of the community, particularly those who are underrepresented? Yes. Listen, we know that Black women um, are three times more likely than white women to have to code switch. So this is, you know, if, if people are not familiar with this, this is adjusting the way you show up in the workplace to try to blend in for fear that you'll be penalized if you show up as yourself. Um, and so it, as you mentioned and Emily mentioned, this takes a tremendous psychological tool, toll on women. Imagine going through the workplace every day and thinking about how you're showing up so much that you're adjusting yourself and kind of you're shielding against uh, these microaggressions. And they really do take a toll. We know that when women experience microaggressions and they self-shield, and as you pointed out, 
you know, Black women, Latinas, LGBTQ plus women, women with disabilities are far more likely to experience demeaning and othering microaggressions, and therefore more likely to have to really think about how they're moving through the workplace and have all the emotional and psychological tool that comes with that. We know they're four times more likely to be burned out than women who don't experience microaggressions. And I think organizations should really listen to this next one. They are three times more likely, not surprisingly, to think about quitting their jobs. And as you said, you know, this is, has a huge impact. Not only are organizations missing out on everything women have to offer, they are literally at risk of losing them. And on top of that, Decades of medical research show that microaggressions contribute to depression, high blood pressure, and other serious health problems. So our big message this year is, you know, the micro and microaggressions. We understand <laughs> from a social science standpoint where that comes from, but really the way we should probably all be thinking about them is that they're macroaggressions because of the level of impact they're having on women in their day-to-day -day experiences. It's so beautifully framed. The and it's also um, it just it gets me that when women are stepping away from work environments for self-preservation, that it's called a lack of ambition, as opposed to really being an essential form of protecting themselves. Because living like that can be an untenable situation. When it comes to um, learning how to move, how to deal with microaggressions. Because I think I, as I struggle with how to navigate this myself in my work to become an ally, how do we become sensitive to when we are committing them? And then how do we address them and correct them when we do? Because I don't think the burden should be on the people that are getting hurt. Rachel, you want to take a stab? I, I, you know what we we have um, we have a program. I will plug it. Forgive me, Laura, but um, called Allyship at Work, and we have another program called Fifty Ways to Fight Bias, which has actually evolved to almost a hundred ways to fight bias, and it's very specific examples of how bias shows up in the workplace and what to do about it. And I will give you a couple fundamentals out of those programs that hopefully are helpful. The first that a lot of people I think know, but is important to remember is there's intent and there's impact. And even if you don't intend to do something hurtful, if the impact of it is hurtful, you need to really kind of take that in. Um, and also, you know, being a good ally, it's a journey. Like none of us are gonna get it right. And creating a culture where people feel comfortable saying, hey, you just did this thing and it felt kind of bad to me and I wanna explain to you why. Um, and being able to really talk about uh, microaggressions and other forms of bias showing up in the workplace, that's helpful. Um, it takes a lot to get there to, what, to a culture that that's, that's that open. Um, we're on that journey as a foundation um, in my own workplace. And some of those conversations have been some of the best and deepest learning that I've had around you know, microaggressions and how I can show up as an ally. A couple of practical things. Um, that we recommend is if you hear something that you think is a microaggression or you just, it feels biased, one really good strategy is simply asking what makes you say that or what makes you think that. There's a lot of research. If you ask people to reflect on their thinking, they often will kind of catch themselves in their own biased thinking. So that's like a very practical strategy. Another strategy we always talk about is get back to the facts. And so, you know, if someone says something that feels like it's it's an opinion or it's a knee-jerk response or they're kind of getting away from, for example, in a performance review, they're getting away from the criteria for the performance you review and into things that feel more like personal taste, you can kind of move people back to the facts. Uh, another really like very kind of day-to-day -day example of that is, you know, women are often mistaken for someone more junior at much higher rates than men are. A way to get back to the facts in that situation would be, hey, you know, as a reminder, you know, Emily's a director at this organization, like literally just bring it back to the facts. Um, and then for women who experience microaggressions themselves, you know, we always say like the onus is not on you. So sometimes the best thing to do is just self-care, right? And, um, but if you do want to speak up, um, taking a deep breath, using a couple of the strategies I just shared um, and pulling someone aside kind of after the fact one-on-one -on -one 
are some of the best ways that you can kind of broach the topic and have the conversation. And there is a fair amount of research that shows, although it's hard in the moment to address a microaggression, particularly when it's directed at you, that it actually can feel quite empowering. So that that act of speaking up for yourself can actually feel quite empowering. So hopefully a couple of things in there are helpful to your listeners. Those are great. And um, if you want to learn more on the LinkedIn website, you can find out about both of these programs. And some of our students have engaged in them and they're really powerful and really easy to step into. Um, I love the point too, just to build on what Rachel was sharing of this feeling empowering, right? Um, I know even personally, right? I've had to have conversations even this week, right? We face these microaggressions most days, candidly, right? And I had to have a conversation this week with a colleague and said, and I just pulled them aside and I said, and I actually started with, I know this is not your intent, but the impact when you interrupted me was X, right? And that really helps take the power back. And importantly too, it creates an environment where that specific colleague, who's an example, a fantastic leader, um, he said to me, my gosh, like, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry. And also I would uh, appreciate, I thank you so much for telling me this. I would appreciate if you continue to give me feedback, I'm really going to work on this. And we actually talked about some strategies where he was going to take some actions. And so it really creates this feedback where it's normal to surface microaggressions. Um, and we need to role model that as, uh, as leaders. Emily, how nervous were you when you did that? You know, you know, I've done it for a while. <laughs> so I have to say, I've actually found just as Rachel was saying, it's incredibly empowering. And I think assuming good intent is the first place to start that lowers the waterline um, and allows people to really show up. Um, but let's be clear, I'm in a unique position, right? Um, for a junior woman in an organization, giving this to a significantly senior leader, right? That is nervous. And so starting with the breath, starting with talking to an ally, starting with getting, um, you know, get, getting some perspective from a peer you trust or a, another colleague, I think is really important. But we have to, one by one, we have to foster that culture where microaggressions are not acceptable. And we have to help employees learn how to avoid and challenge. And that's exactly what Lean In is doing with the resources that Rachel described. And also you modeled something for us that I think is powerful and a reminder that when we're trying to enter into a difficult conversation, to not come in attacking someone's character, but to instead make room for what can be a productive dialogue. And you did that by saying, I don't think this was your intent. And then the I messaging, I need to tell you this because I feel like this when you do that. Um, it was a really... Um, I think an approach we all can learn from. So thank you for sharing. Um, in the few minutes we have before the break, and we have another question for you. You know, we're clearly seeing and, and talking about microaggressions, you can see why a lot of us might run away from the workplace to stay at home and just stay safer. Um, we also know that some organizations are approaching flexibility in different ways. Can you talk to us what we what the report, what you learned through the data about the employer side of it. What are the patterns that you're seeing with offering flexibility and who's making those decisions? Yeah, so what we know is that 87% of people want flexible work models. Importantly, that's not all remote in many cases, right? People say, hey, about a third of people say they wanna be on site two to three days a week. What we know is that in many cases, the most senior leaders, the CEO um, and the C-suite are making those determinations about what the model is going to be at their organization. Here's the problem though, more than 20% um, or only 20% of organizations are actually looking at the data and saying, What's driving productivity? What's driving results? Um, four, less than four out of five companies are actually saying, what is the optimal model based on what's driving impact? And so when we think about the opportunity, right, we've talked about why it's so important. What we know is that 
right? Remote wins for productivity, work-life balance, less burnout fatigue, the freedom to choose when and where to work. It also allows you to think about how can you get outside of the talent pipeline in your, in your city and to think more expansively about being able to attract diverse talent and the unique skills you need. However, companies aren't actually using the data. And so what matters most is that you really fine tune the flexible working model. What does it look like, right? We can't fly in the dark, right? Yeah, that starts with the data. And then also getting really clear about how and where work gets done. What's the best work to do in person, right? Think about, you know, deeply creative, collaborative work, um, deep coaching and development and community building, right? And then what's best done vir um, virtually or remotely, um, asynchronous work, heads down work that an individual um, can really focus best where they work, right? Um, and we have to start with really helping define the where the work gets done, right? You know, this hybrid, you know, hybrid, right? Something we actually have never nailed before. We just said, everyone come into the office two to three days a week, right? Well, we haven't actually said, let's take a look at how we're spending our time, what it needs to look like. Where do people do their best work? What are the norms, right? And also within that, what does the flexibility look like? Childcare drop-off, personal com well-being commitments, um, caregiving. Um, we actually have to think about flexibility and hybrid, not just as what days are you in the office, but where does the work get done and how do we create flexibility? I like to call it flexibility on the fringes within the in-person days to drive the highest impact for the organization's performance and for the individuals who are so critical to achieving it. So before the break, we were talking about the enormous value of flexibility its complexity, the different ways that organizations can and should be tracking it. Um, one of the things I want to explore is we know that there are these upsides of flexibility and not just where we work, but when we work, yes. the schedules we set for ourselves. Um, but there's also some downsides, some way that women in particular can get hurt. And I'm particularly concerned about women at the early stages of their career. Rachel, can you talk to us about what the downside is and how we can mitigate it? Listen, I'm going outside our data a little bit. Um, uh, because the reality is we're, I think we're so early in this seismic shift in how we work that, you know, it's probably a couple years out to really begin to understand if there is a significant impact on women's career progression, for example, or, you know, kind of rate of promotion, access to opportunity. Mm -hmm. But those are the things that we should all be watching, right? That is, you know, um, is, with the shift to more flexible work, are women in some way um, being left behind? So I think that's what we need to be watching for. And, and when we look at what organizations are doing, it is actually pretty clear in the data that they do need, need to take more steps to weave flexibility, like truly into the fabric of how we work. Um, and with a particular focus on making sure the playing field is level. Right. Like we need to get it. We need to get ahead of it. So there's a couple of things we know. Only about half of companies have trained managers to oversee employees working flexibly or remotely. So they haven't got any specific training on kind of what to do in this new kind of world of work. And less than a third of companies have communicated to employees they should not be penalized when they work remotely um, and or at flex times. And similar, like very few have re redesigned their performance evaluations to emphasize results, not where and when you work. So one of our big messages is, you know, we need a, a shift, a cultural shift in organizations, and we need to bring managers along on that cultural shift, that it's results, it's the quality of work, it's not where and when it gets done. And then the other thing we talk about a lot in this year's report is data, data, data. I think Emily said this earlier, do not fly blind, right? <laughs> so you need to be tracking, um, and I should say you, sh you should not fly in the dark to be more right. inclusive, but um, you, uh, you need to be tracking 
uh, outcomes uh, for women and all people in your organization by work modality to make sure that you're getting ahead of if there's anything that is un uneven about the playing field as you're rolling out new programming to support flexible and hybrid work. I think you need to do that as organizations with a lot of humility and a real growth mindset because the reality is as we're redefining work, there's going to be good decisions and bad decisions. And so understanding what's working for employees and what's not and course correcting as you go is going to be really important. And just always keeping our eye on that, keep the level on um, the playing field level, like keeping our eye on that as we go. Emily, we've um, long heard that culture starts from the top. Yet we're also seeing that, especially when it comes to flexible work and DEI practices, managers can play an incredibly important role. Can you talk to us about where you're seeing that in the data, whether it's where managers have the room to shape flexible policies and what you think they need to be paying attention to to maximize these opportunities? Yeah, the managers play an outsized role here, right? And even just think about it for a moment, the role of the manager, right? Manager, you know, between 90 to upward of 97, 98% of employees in any organization report up to a manager. Managers have a disproportionate impact on an individual's well-being, um, their performance uh, to the tune of 70 to 75%. There's data that suggests that a manager has more of an impact on someone's um, satisfaction in life than their spouse, right? A manager is absolutely critical, right? And what we know when we look at the data is that companies that really train their managers, support their managers in how they mentor and guide different working models, they give their managers training on how to support well-being, right? Companies that do these things, they um, have better outcomes, right? And the companies that uh, don't are more likely to have that broken rung. And so we really have to put the power to the manager to say, let's give managers the tools um, and let's empower them to define where and how we work, right? Um, how we create the right team norms and the right inclusive environment for everyone's strengths to be recognized. It really starts um, with the manager, but here's the problem, right? Managers, um, when we look at uh, data, and this is from power to the middle of how managers spend their time, right? Managers spend about half their time, so two and a half days a week, just to put it into context, uh, on administrative tasks and individual contributor works. They spend a day and a half a week on average on people leadership. Well, there's therein lies a problem, right? right? Managers feel like they are not rewarded for doing the people leadership side of things, right? We, we call them people managers, but we're not holding them accountable or giving them um, rewards for their people leadership. They're, they're not bad people. They're rational individuals who are trying to say, hey, in order to perform, I'm going to focus on what gets rewarded. We have to, re we have to one, put people leadership, right? These expectations around creating diverse and inclusive teams, on supporting women's advancement, on having equitable outcomes and promotion parity. That has to be part of the manager job description. And they have to be held accountable Um but they also have to have the time and support to get it right, right? We, um, we, we can't just manifest good managers. We have to invest and develop them. So, so true. So, Rachel, I want to tap into something, um, kind of a segue here, because, you know, Emily's talking about how important managers are, yet we see in order to become a manager, that is the critical professional step. Um, when we talk about the pipeline up to the C-suite, it's clear from the data that that's where our big problem is. How do we get more people and more underrepresented people to become managers? Can you talk about what you found in the report of where the biggest problems are? Yeah, Laura, thank you so much for asking. This is one of our other myths, right? I think that conventional wisdom is that there's a glass ceiling and that's the biggest barrier to women advancing into senior leadership. And I want to be really clear, 
there is a glass ceiling (laughs) and it is a problem. Um, But nine years of this study show the same thing, that the biggest barrier to women's advancement is actually at the very first promotion to manager. So for every 100 men promoted to manager last year, only 87 women were and 73 women of color. So think about that for a minute. What happens is at the manager level, about 60% of managers end up being men and 40% end up being women. And we all, you know, we can all do the math and think about what the what the impact that it has as you get more senior up up into the pipeline, there are literally fewer women to promote at every level, which it makes it almost impossible for organizations to reach sustained parity in senior leadership. They simply do not have enough women coming up through the ranks to do this. And, you know, a lot of times if you talk to people about the broken wrong, they will say, hey, but don't women ask for promotions at lower rates than men? Is that maybe driving this? Or don't women at that kind of level leave their organizations at higher rates than men? Maybe that's like, you know, has an impact here. And the reality is the answer is no and no. We know that women are just as likely as men to ask for promotions, and we know they are not leaving their organizations at higher rates at the entry level. So then you have to go, what else is driving this? Why is there something happening? Organizations basically bring women and men into their organizations, hire them into the entry level at about comparable rates. So why at that first promotion are outcomes so different? And we think it a lot of it is there's bias in the system. You know, there's 30, 40 years of social science research that tells us that we all fall into a couple traps. We're less likely to think women are as committed to their careers as men. And we're more likely to associate men with leadership than we are women with leadership. And as a result, there's a lot of research that shows men are often hired and promoted based on potential what we think they can do. And women are often hired and promoted based on what they've already done. And I think that's a lot of what's driving what's happening here um, at this first promotion up to manager when track records are really small, like resumes are small. So it's more likely that bias thinking is going to, is going to, is going to impact outcomes. And the one thing I do want to like circle back on is, you know, it's a hundred men for, for every 100 men, it's 73 women of color, and that is actually trending the wrong direction. Last year, it was 82 women of color. And if you get underneath that data, there's another concerning trend that we saw this year, which is uh, you know, back five years ago, it was 58 black women were being promoted for every 100 men, which is just a jaw-droppingly low number yeah. when you think about it, just jaw-droppingly low. And then in 2020 and 2021, we saw a lot of progress, actually. In 2021, it was up to 96 Black women for every 100 men. We had almost closed that broken rung for Black women. And this past year, it dropped all the way back to what we saw five years ago. So all that progress has been lost. Um, So for all women, one of our big messages to organizations this year is we've been talking about it for nine years. It's not going away. It's addressable. We know where the problem is, and we have very practical recommendations on what you can do. It's about time to address that broken rung. And then when it comes to women of color, and particularly Black women, we know they are highly ambitious, more ambitious than white women. So putting a laser focus on making sure that they're getting the support they need and getting tapped for promotions at that manager level and then getting those promotions is just critically important. So the broken rung's been broken for nine years and it's time (laughs) overdue that companies address it. And I posit it's been broken a lot longer than that. We just have nine years of data. Yes, we just have nine years of data. That's exactly right. So Emily, one of the things that's critical at, to make that step from, you know, to climb up past that first rung into the role of manager is in addition to this issue of, are you perceived as a leader? Are you given the shot of being able to do the things you haven't done before? Is Are your performance evaluations? Can you talk to me at the from an organizational perspective, what needs to change in how performance evaluations are administered and tracked higher up in the organization? Yeah. So frankly, Laura, a lot needs to change, right? When we think about the fact that 
women are um, more likely to be reviewed based on their past performance, men based on their future potential, and the fact that more managers are men by definition, right? 60% for and 40% women. Um, then we've got this huge bias at play, right? Where men are the ones making the decision. They're falling prey to, you know, the mini me bias of people who look like them. Um, and so it really starts with the promotion criteria and the actual process. Um, one, we, we need to put sort of that, the red light on bias, right? We all have bias. It's biological. You can't eliminate it. You can mitigate it, right? And so we really have to think about what are the people processes we're putting into place. And we, we need to expect and frankly require promotion parity, right? We need to expect our managers to be developing women and men at the same rates. We need men to uh, managers who are more likely to be men um, to sponsor um, and create opportunities for women, particularly women of color, who are less likely because, again, we're just naturally predisposed to um, spend more time with people who are like us. There's also a huge problem around feedback. Um, Again, we are naturally predisposed to find it easier to give feedback to people who look like us, who come from our backgrounds, who have things in common with us. And we really need to normalize that we need to give feedback to everyone. And performance reviews are not the time for surprises. We need to be having ongoing feedback um, throughout the course of the year, all in service of development. And then finally, what I would say is, when we actually think about the promotion criteria, it goes back to something Rachel said earlier, get to the facts. What's the evidence, right? What is the impact? Um, instead of saying, I think he'd be great, right? Why? Let's actually talk about how they compare relative to the competency model or the specific criteria and promotion markers um, that are going to be required to do the job. So Rachel, in Addressing performance evaluations, where is it that, um, how, what can women do to help tee themselves up for the performance evaluation process so that they can, their accomplishments can be recognized and their potential can be seen? Yeah, this is such a good question. So, uh, you know, some of it is just how do you get recognized? And there's lots of people that have talked about this. This is not a lean in thing, but, uh, you know, form a posse, get people in your organization who you're celebrating their accomplishments. They're celebrating yours just to make sure that nothing you do goes overlooked. Um, and I also think there are some really clever ways to self advocate kind of leading up to the promotions process. I have a couple women on my team who every year, so everybody else on my team should listen, every year they send me emails heading into the promotion cycle, reminding me, or every half I should say, reminding me of what they accomplished the last half and what they're most proud of. They do it beautifully, not in a, like, a braggios way. And to be, it's a great reminder of what they've accomplished. And because all of us tend to think about what happened in the last couple months, it's human nature. And it reminds you, look at the sum total of the good work they've done over the half. And related to that, you should go in to your performance review with everything that you've done documented and whatever numbers that, you know, showing that you've hit the numbers you know, articulating what are the goals we agreed on and, and how did I like perform against them? Anything that you can do yourself to get back to the facts and to kind of really build a very kind of matter of fact um, case uh, for uh, for your um, for your accomplishments. And then, you know, ask and ask often. You know, I always say, like, ask for more money. Like imagine how much you should be asking for and put like a 20 or 30% pad on it is probably what most women should be doing. Um, and then for uh, promotions, ask. And if someone says you're not quite ready or, you know, I don't think this cycle, get really specific with them about what do I need to do over the next half or the next year to, to be on track for that promotion. And I really do think like any manager should be able to give you 
the three to five things, concrete things you need to do to move your performance to the next level and get that promotion. And if they're not able to do that, you need to push to get that and kind of figure out how to have the right conversation. So those are just a couple of things that are hopefully helpful to the women <laughs> listening. And then in terms of debiasing promotions, I think for people who are doing the evaluations, um, companies can send out bias reminders that we all fall into bias thinking when it comes to evaluating performance. And here's some of the ways that shows up to be aware of as we go into this review cycle. We know that some organizations have had a lot of success with bias monitors. So this is a third party kind of sitting in when candidates for promotion or a performance reviews or um, outcomes are discussed and kind of they're there to make sure you're back to the criteria and you're kind of sticking with the facts, the conversation. And they're also there to bubble up something that might be biased um, if they hear it. And we know that can be um, successful. And then this kind of goes back to the, you know, why do you say that question? But you can also ask evaluators to explain their thinking. Because again, when you're asked to explain the rationale behind a rating or a decision, that often helps you check your own bias thinking too. And then the only final thing I would say is we do need to remember, which I've already alluded to, this is not men being biased against women. This is deep-seated bias. So all of us tend to fall into the same bias traps regardless of our gender. It's such fantastic advice and such a good way of explaining it. And I want to come back to two things. So one is we've gotten this advice from other guests to build an I love me file um, that as you go through the year, um, keep a record and do it for two reasons. One is obviously so that you're not going to forget anything when it comes to evaluation and promotion time. But the other is that when you're having a bad day, you got the I love me file where you can say, you know what, if you're ever questioning yourself. I did this, I accomplished this, I got this. Save the emails that you get from colleagues or partners that thank you for what you did or praise what you did um, and note where you are proud of yourself. It can go a long way on both fronts. And for those of you who don't know, we're having this conversation and I can actually see Rachel and she's nodding her head up and down. <laughs> yeah. And I've never heard it called an I love me file, but I love I, I love that framing, that, uh, um, that's perfect. And as Emily was demonstrating earlier, there are ways for us to bring these things up in conversation that um, also don't tap into the bias about women advocating for themselves. So Emily, can you talk a little bit, you did such a good job, I don't wanna put you on the spot, but I'm gonna, of role modeling how you can open this up in conversation. I'm so glad you asked, Laura, because we're actually going through reviews right now at McKinsey, and this is some of the advice I'm giving to some of the colleagues that I sponsor. Um, one of the things that I think can be most helpful is don't wait till the performance review, right? Actually have the conversation at the beginning of the year and early and often with your manager. One, let's talk about the goals. Let's talk about the impact. Um, and also let's talk about, hey, how would you best like to receive um, updates on where I'm progressing, right? You know, Rachel just gave great advice to her team members of, hey, shoot me a note, synthesize the impact, keep, keep it front and center for me, right? With um, colleagues with whom I work, I like to tell them, one, let's have check-ins in the flow of work, so we're tracking, but two, in really critical promotion milestone years or time periods, um, let's make sure that you're having the right conversations, you know, on a bi-monthly basis with your critical sponsors, where you're getting their advice, where you're asking them to help see around corners, where you're also sharing and radiating your impact, right? And so I think that's so important, waiting till the end of the year and getting the performance rating or getting passed over for the promotion and saying, hey, it would have been really great if you'd done these three things. Well, let's not wait to find that out. Let's actually ask it up front right? No surprises. And I think what's really important too for the managers that are listening is um, clear as care, right? Be, be specific, be fact-based uh, and really spend the time thinking about how is that employee um, you know, showing up against the markers for the next level and get really clear what are the few things, not be better, right? Not um, per do more, but actually what are the few things that they need to do? And then what's how are you going to help them? How are you going to create those opportunities for them to be able to actually demonstrate that? 
So part of what you're describing isn't just using performance evaluation as the report card. It's using performance evaluation as a tool in development. Um, so Rachel, can you talk about this a little bit and where we can be furthering the goal and getting more people to survive that broken rung and move forward if we go into that with that proactive developmental mindset? Yeah, listen, I think Emily's making a great point, right? Good managers and a good performance review system is not just at the moment of the performance reviews. It's making sure you're having ongoing conversations about performance. And I also, I believe wholeheartedly like Emily, that feedback is a gift, you know? So as a manager, it's, it's incumbent upon you to be giving really clear uh, empathetic feedback to the people on your team. So they know, you know, how to lean into their strengths and what their areas for improvement are. It's these insights are just so tremendous. Um, Emily, where can people go if they want to find more, one, if they want to find the report and more resources on what they can be doing within their own organization? Yeah, well, I'm going to plug Lean In here, right? LeanIn.org, right? We, you can access the report also um, on McKinsey.com. You can see um, additional data and research. Um, but I think it really starts with reading the report reflecting, having a conversation, right? How is this showing up in our organization? And how are we going to, as Rachel said, fix the broken rung? We simply cannot afford not to. Rachel, Emily, I can't thank you enough. One, for joining me today. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversations. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you. And thank you for your interest in this study every year. We really appreciate it. Everybody listening, go get the report, read it. We promise you will learn something that's helpful to you. Indeed. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find our podcast 24-7 wherever you get yours. And be sure to follow us on at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Thanks as always to my amazing team, Dana Cash, Dion Simpkins, Chris Tooks, and our analytics at Wharton team, Kyle Kearns, Teresa Kosadak, and Jillian Rogers. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on SiriusXM. Every day there's something to survive. Bye.